It's another podcast from your good friends at Books of the Year Podcasts Incorporated. It is, and it truly is feast or famine with us, isn't it? Because we, we do tend to do this thing where we don't have a podcast for ages and then, like, seven appear at once. So We do expect um, a discipline from our from our audience that they just, you know, they accept that when one pops into their box, then that's the way it's going to be. We're like that friend that doesn't ever go out. And then when they do go out, insists that we're not only going out, we're doing shots. And then we're going to a club. And then I know this place that's open till three, because apparently that's what all the kids do. And uh, we're sort of just like that. I haven't got any friends like that. Neither have I. I'm too old. I'm very happy to be in bed by 10. You are that person, actually. (laughs) I'm very much the person who's in bed by 10. Oh, my worst night of the year is New Year's Eve, because I have to stay up. Have to stay up till midnight. Oh, please let me go to bed. I've got a book here. Yeah? Which I just thought would be quite interesting. It's called It's Never Too Late, Stories of People Who Changed the World in Later Life. Okay, yes. I just... (laughs) Apropos of nothing, Matt. Apropos of nothing... (laughs) Just in case you might find this useful. <laughs> really? Yeah. Or inspirational. Uh, yes, I will. So give us some examples then. People okay, changed... Sister Wendy, right. Sister Wendy? Sister Wendy Beckett lived in solitude in a caravan in the grounds of a Carmelite monastery in Norfolk. Yes. When she wasn't praying, she was translating Latin. She had lived this way since 1970 and she was 61 years old. Despite her austere lifestyle, however, she also found time to write. And then she got discovered and she was a super big art critic. Was it? Yeah, she was the one on the telly, wasn't she? Yeah. Yes. So the sister Wendy. Uh-huh. Colonel Sanders. As in Mr. KFC? Yeah. Wow. He accumulated a strikingly varied CV. He was farm worker, fireman, insurance salesman, tyre seller, steamboat ferryman and finally gas station manager. It was the last of these roles that put him in the path to finger-licking greatness. How does being a petrol station attendant make you uh, on the way to... He began offering fried chicken to hungry motorists passing through his gas station. Soon his reputation stretched up and down the highway, so he built a restaurant. And by 1963, at the age of 73... He had 600 Kentucky Fried Chicken restaurants. Goodness so me. He, so he started super late. So, so you and he was him. an actual colonel, wasn't he? <coughs> as yeah. in, like, you know, Ronald McDonald never existed, did he? As far as I know. He was, he just, was a colonel. He was a... Right. But here's some... And if none of those inspire you, you could always be the next Barbara Woodhouse. Barbara Woodhouse, really? Yes. OK, what was she doing until... At the start of 1980, she was 70 years old. And more or less unknown. Just a few months later, she'd become and would remain until her death eight years later, one of the most recognisable women in the world. So, you, so the fact that there's Goodness no one me. who snapped you up. No, at the no, moment, no, no, absolutely. I'm sure it's just around the corner. So she, so just eight years between her finding stardom and and leaving this earth. earth. Yes, <laughs> well, I wasn't focusing on that quite so much. As trying to encourage you. But isn't that, that astonishing? Because that, you say Barbara Woodhouse, and straight away I know who that is. And yet she only spent eight years in the public consciousness. Isn't that amazing? That is amazing, Sit actually. T- yeah. Yes, that's the one. Yeah, the all one that. with the all dogs. That. So yeah. anyway, so also, if there's anyone out there who might employ you... Yes, please, please do uh, do get in touch. That would be nice. Because another reason why there's <laughs> loads of these podcasts is that you're available. <laughs> I am! I mean, let's just keep doing them, you know. It's either this or Bargain Hunt. Anyway, uh, Mark Billingham is on the way. Well, I say that, have we seen him? No, we haven't no. seen him yet. No. 
forgotten. If he doesn't turn up, you're just going to have to talk to me about my book. <laughs> about your book. Let's talk about your book, because we're, we're now in a position where you can say stuff about it, can't yeah, you? Yeah, I can. There's because before cover. it was shrouded in mystery. Describe the cover. I can describe it. You can, can I? describe wow. it. Wow, it is actually a very, very good cover. Thank so you, I you need it to. It's a. Um, we're looking at a. Well, I was about to say crowd, but it's not a crowd really. It's like I'm guessing this is a uh, like a train concourse. So like at Euston or wherever, Ooh. where everyone is obviously looking to see where they when their train, what platform they're going to be leaving from. Mm. Now everyone is in silhouette. And you're viewing them as if, well, from behind. So straight away, it sort of shouts out sinister. Why are you looking at these people from this height? It's almost Mm. the kind of height you'd be if you were a sniper or something like that. And the uh, shout line is, you never know where danger will come from. Will it come from, you know, where you're stood right now? Silent mayo, knife edge. What can you say about it? I've not read it. We should say that. No, I've well, not read no, it yet. no. Because there aren't I'm, any copies. I'm assuming you've read it. So, I have read what it. can you say about it? Is there anything you can say about, about it? Tw- I've read it about twenty-six times. Okay. Though there'll still be something that annoys me because I'll have missed it. Okay. Because there's always a mistake. You just got to let it go, haven't you? You just got to yeah. let it. go I don't go even know what world. it is. I've got to let go. No, no. Okay. But, so what can you say? Uh, what can I just say? It's a contemporary. Th- it's coming out in June. Mm. It's a contemporary thriller. It's about a woman who's a journalist who works for a news agency called Famey. Uh, and it starts with her going into a shift at this particular uh, news agency. And she is... She, the position that she's in is called slot, which is basically, in most organisations, would be like editor. It would be the person who decides what you snap. Okay. So if a story comes in, it's the person who's slot who decides, yes, that's a good story. I'm going to put that on the wires. Okay, Okay. yeah. So And a number of senior journalists take that role. And when she starts her shift, um, there are reports that are coming in of various stabbings. And in the course of uh, a couple of hours, there are seven stabbings, seven murders, all in one rush hour. And it's declared a terrorist attack. Okay, and then over it doesn't take them very long before they realise that they recognise uh, some of the people who are being identified as the victims, and they all work for the same news agency. And in fact, they all sit next to. Facebook. They all. Oh my goodness! So, uh, so that's so that's all I'm going to tell you just for the okay, moment. Okay, okay, this I is can, very good. I can piece it together over the next few episodes. Yeah, <laughs> I could do like an audio book. <laughs> yes. Oh, why? Why ever not? Are you doing an audio book? My guess is there will be an audio book. Yeah. Yes, and I'd, I'd love to do all the voices. Yes, of course. I but, mean, because you've, you've not done the voices for any of yours yet, have you? No, I decided that you know, might as well get a professional to do it. I always believe in getting the specialist. You know, get an actor in who can do, like, proper voices, because, okay. as you know, I can do <laughs> Camp Cockney and Cornish. <laughs> so I haven't cast this book on the basis that I can do the audio book. You've, okay? you've not made one of the characters one, fit one of those three stereotypes, no. then? No. Okay. No, I haven't. For, no, actually, no. no. Wow. Okay, and it's, so it's a thrilling book. It is, yeah. It no, is. it sounds like it shouts out thriller. I mean, that yeah. the uh, the front cover. That's a very good front cover. And I remember when Lee Child came in. Yes, and oh, this was at a time yes. when we couldn't talk about the cover. He said that is a very strong cover. So, and let's you know, let's be absolutely honest about it. Everyone says you shouldn't judge a book by its cover, but, but that's do. how that's how most of us make our decision. When we're in, you know, WH Smith before we're about to get on a long train journey and we're thinking, right, what is going to divert me for the next, you know, three hours? 
then we are going to judge it by the cover. So that's a strong cover. Well, yes, and it's all very. Uh, you you write something for. A, it took you know everything takes me about a year and a half, okay. two years to do because I have other jobs to do. Yeah. Um, so it's quite, so it's frust- the whole process is frustratingly slow, and it feels as though it's been going for a long, 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 long time. And can you tell us where the sort of original germ of the idea came from? Or I mean, it sounds very contemporary because obviously these are things that are that are happening with uh, quite a lot of a lot frequency. of it. A lot of it came about from a conversation I had with Gordon Carrera, the BBC's oh, security correspondent. Yes, of course. Yeah, we were talking about the nature of spying. Okay, the nature of spying. Oh, so it's an espionage. Well, thriller. It's well, it is and it isn't. Okay, so it's not. Well, well, it is, <laughs> and in another way, in another way, it isn't. It's not. Okay, because I remember, didn't Gordon provide? I seem to. Didn't he help with the itch books? Wasn't he sort of involved in one of the itch books? Uh, n- no, uh, I have used. Um, I forgot the name. No. Gordon Carrera. No, no, no. I used uh, BBC's crime correspondent. Um, oh, um, uh, funny name. Um, isn't he Welsh? Um, no. <laughs> It'll come to me by the end of the podcast. It's not Hugh Pym. No, he's no, he's health. health. He's health. He's he health, health, health now, is he? Yeah, he's health. Oh. He's he's helping me with my next one. Really? Yeah, I've just been contacted. Genuinely? Yeah. Right, okay. Yeah. Okay. Um, So anyway, let's just say the crime correspondent, because we can't remember who it is. Yes. So basically, uh, he, I, it, the book is not a police procedural in the way Mark Billingham, who knows if Mark Billingham's going to turn up. Well, I think we're just going to spend an hour talking about you. Yeah. yeah. Um, But the police are involved. Um, in this, obviously, because it, and it's based in London and it's a terrorist attack, so you need to have the police involved. And this guy, BBC's crime correspondent, <laughs> blimey, come on, Mayo, um, put me in touch with uh, a policeman who, a retired policeman who, uh, who managed to be incredibly useful. Okay, okay. Danny. Uh, oh, Danny, Danny Shaw. Danny Shaw. Sorry, Danny, if you, if you listen. He sounds very Welsh. And Danny, that's right, yes. <laughs> Funny name. Uh, his wife is a writer as well. Anyway, so so Danny put me in touch with this guy, John Sutherland, who used to be a police commander okay. uh, in the Met. So uh, John has been very helpful. Just in terms, you know, because you, you know a certain number of things about the police. And then you realise, I only know this because I've seen it on the telly and in movies. Yeah. Do they really talk to each other like that? You know, how do they use the... How do they use the radio when they're calling in to their headquarters you know yeah, what is the yeah, yeah. actual language that they would use uh-huh. if they were using weapons what would be the weapon of choice who would be the uh, who would be in that patrol car you know uh, okay. and so on so yeah, yeah, yeah. there's all kinds of things that you need to get absolutely right yeah. and so hopefully john has but that's, so that. that's when you were also obviously... someone else who's helped me is anita anand formerly oh anita yeah, who, yeah, yeah. who uh, was a, a guest on this podcast was, there yeah. are a few areas that i needed her expertise in which i'm not going to talk about okay okay and basically what needs to happen is in June, when this book comes out, yes. you need to interview me. I, but I think, we, yes, well, I need to read the book first. When am I going to get to read the book? Uh, well, I don't know. Just, uh, you don't need to bother. <laughs> 
because you might not like it. Well, no, I will. I mean, I've read. I you mean, don't know. You, well, no, oh right, okay. No, I don't know, but I did really. You know that that. So your last one was uh, Mad Blood Stone. Yes, Rings, yeah, yes. Memorable <laughs> oh, title. Oh my goodness. So and I read that was my favourite book of that year. That was 2018. Boom. Yeah, there you go. You see, so. No, I, I am looking forward to it because, and it just shouts out: this is going to be thriller. This is going to be not put downable. This is going to be fun. Twenty eighteen. That was a year, wasn't it? What a year that was. Let's let's very much dwell on that. Let's not. Um, but no, no, I'm looking forward to it. <laughs> uh, yeah, but that book was the highlight of the year, wasn't it? Really? <laughs> Didn't have to try too hard. Anyway, um, I'm going to get you a copy. Yeah, get me a copy. Certainly, get me a copy. Yeah. Definitely in the market for that. Okay, right. Always love a bit of a thriller, a bit of espionage, a bit of that. Apparently yeah. it's not espionage, but whatever. You know. And and while I was trying to get the ending absolutely right, all I could think of was Matt saying, the ending doesn't matter. No, yeah. it doesn't. Endings don't matter. Everyone gets really... I remember when we um, did the uh, book club on Radio 2, and when we were choosing books, everyone would say, mm, I'm not sure about the ending. And I'd be like, well, number one, we can't talk about the ending because most people haven't read the book. But number two, endings don't matter. They really don't. Are you enjoying the book? Yes. You get to the ending and sometimes, bluntly, there are books that I've read that I've really enjoyed and the ending hasn't worked and it doesn't detract away from the, from the okay. book at all. <clears throat> well, so. you, need, you need to get it to... I think you need it to work. Otherwise, it's just... You don't want someone to close the book and think, well, that was disappointing. I'm not going to read another one from them. OK, I disagree. I disagree. Well, I think... what do you know? <laughs> what so, do you know? Because you know, there, there have certainly been authors I've read who have finished a book and gone, that ending made no sense at all. But I definitely read some of their other okay. stuff. Now, here's the thing. <clears throat> so there's no sign of Billingham no, at the moment. No, no. Can we fill an entire podcast with just us talking... This kind of level of <laughs> but stuff. Let's see how long we can fill. Do you know that this is like being back in the sort of BBC days, where probably at Five Live more than Radio Two, because if things went down on Radio Two, yeah. we could always crack <clears> open, <throat> you know, the ACDC and and leave that on for a while. But back on Five Live, if things went down as they often did, like lives went down, as in live inserts. You don't mean a, a I life. don't mean a life. I mean somebody no. somewhere else. Then you just have to talk. And you'd have to keep talking. You'd have a you'd have a um, editor through the glass would be making the windmill motion with their arms to basically say you know keep going, keep going, keep going because we haven't got anyone else to film. Yes, uh, so this is what this is what we're trained in doing. Clearly, this is exactly yeah. what it feels like. Yeah. Yeah. But I would normally have a few texts yes. or emails. Normally, we'd have the weather or the travel to go to based on the previous guest. <laughs> <clears throat> and don't forget, coming up later. Uh, so Mark Billingham's book is called. <laughs> How many times are we going to say is it? Well, How um, long have we been going? This is like 20 minutes, Mark. Their little secret is what mm. Mark... What, what are you planning on, on talking to Mark about? <laughs> I would ask him about Tom Thorne. Tom Thorne. Do you know what I am... I'm going to... I've written down already the question that I know you're going to want to ask. Hey. And I bet you can guess what that question is. Is it to do with David Morrissey? No, it's not. No, why David? Because he looks a bit like David. No, Morrissey. Dave Morrissey played him in playing oh. when it was because it ran for a few years on Sky. Okay, and he played Tom Thorne. Okay, okay. What else am I going to want? To ask I him? thought you were going to ask about the fact that clearly Tom Thorne is a Spurs fan. Oh yeah, yeah, I have written that down. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah and yeah. Uh, and and Spurs did quite well against. They City, did, didn't they? Which was of, of great use yes, to you. I'm very, very happy with that. Uh, well done, the mighty Spurs. I just got a message saying Billingham gone AWOL. Trying to solve the mystery. His PR is on the case. Right, okay. 
Does that mean Mark has got lost? I'm going to say he's got lost somewhere. But he lives in London. Yeah, he is. He's very North London. Come on. <laughs> Come on. I think, and I will bring this up with Mark when he comes in, if eventually, he comes in. if he comes in, is that what I enjoyed particularly about the book, amongst other things, obviously, is that I recognised loads of places. So when uh, the two anti-heroes go to the cinema, I know exactly what that cinema is. And, in fact, I know the pub that they go to afterwards, and I've been to that pub. Really? And I know exactly the kind of food they sell in that pub as well. The producer just walked in. We're keeping this going. We haven't, yeah. we haven't <laughs> yeah, we actually stopped. This is, this is now we're going to get some live production. What do you uh, What do you think? Latest news. How long would you like us to just talk about stuff? <laughs> Four minutes. Okay. I could always read an extract from my book. Why not? Yes, give us a taster. Okay, should I do the first line? Yeah, because we always judge on the first line. Go on. Okay. Go on. Tuesday... May 22nd, when you think of it. So <laughs> Questions. Ooh, Tuesday, yeah. Mm. Mary Lawson was the first to die. So who was, So we had Sophie Hannah saying that you've got to get her by the end of paragraph two. If you've not got them by the end of paragraph two, then she's putting the book down. Well, here's, here, OK, here's the second sentence. Go on. Leaving Euston Station shortly after 6.45, she made straight for her favourite breakfast store. Her favourite breakfast stall? Yes, a breakfast stall. A stall that sells breakfast. What do you think? Stall that sells breakfast? Oh, right. So Sorry, right, a coffee stall. Yeah. Breakfast stall? I've never heard of a breakfast stall. Has anyone? Have you, Ben, have you heard no, of a breakfast stall? No, it's 6.45 in the evening either. 6.45 in the morning. Oh, dear. Uh, 6.45 in the morning, yeah. idiots. I'm not, <laughs> <laughs> not reading That's anymore. I'm not reading anymore. <laughs> we get to the second line. What's that then? Well, well, I'm glad we went down that line. No more exclusives as far as you're concerned. Elizabeth Waddington says, I I must be a strange... She says, hi. Mm. I must be a strange sight, a mad, grinning woman, sometimes laughing out loud as I yomp around my lunchtime power walks. Use it or lose it. Eat less, move more. Take your pick accompanied by the Books of the Year podcasts. As one of your correspondents said, the Australian academic, don't worry about irregularity. It's great to have any at all. I even love the football chat at the front. We haven't done much of that. I'm only up to Adele Parks. What a lovely lady. So I hope by now Matt is gainfully employed again. No. If if not, good luck. Yeah, thanks. Thanks, Thanks. and please keep up the podcast. They are fascinating. Yes, they are. We haven't done enough football chat, have we? Well, I I suppose we could keep our powder dry just in case Mark does make it, because I will want to ask you both about Tottenham. So, um, but but Elizabeth, thank you very much. I don't think he's not. He isn't a Tottenham supporter. Is he not? No. His character is Tom Thorne. Yeah, yeah, I assumed he must be. I think be. he's Villa or something. Oh, right, OK. Ridiculous well, like Ridiculous. That. Ridiculous, <laughs> that is. I don't know where Ben said the tweets were. Um, no. Some messages from his wife. Probably don't read those out. No, do you think? Uh, I'm going to say. Oh, it looks like Mark's arriving. Brilliant. You'll never guess who's here. Oh, Mark. We've Come just, on, we've, take we've, a seat. We've already... <coughs> How you doing, Mark? We, we've gone through all the, all the good questions that we're going to ask yeah. you, and yeah. we're just trying to predict the kind of things that you're saying. Yes. Like Take a, a seat. Drink coffee uh, no, I'm, I'm all coffeeed up, actually. Yeah, there's some water there. If you... Cheers. Thanks. I hope you've got a good excuse, Mark, anyway. We, we've, we haven't been saying anything rude about you okay, at all. that's fine. 
I'll take out my bit of paper. Um, I just had coffee with David Morrissey, who says hello. David oh, right. Morrissey. Is, is he that, did get a mention. Yeah, we did mention him. Oh, right. So is that why you're late, David Morrissey? Is he, I'm he... not late. It's 3.40, right? 3.20. 3.20, but you know... 3.40? If... Oh, you're kidding me. It says 3.40 on my... Wow. I'm just going to prove that to you so you don't think I'm a knob. Because <laughs> I... I... if there's one thing I can't stand, it's lateness. Here you go, look. Just want to show you this. <laughs> go on. Go on. Yeah, you got it wrong, haven't you? Ridiculous. Yeah, I got it wrong. I'm really sorry. And it's very nice to see you, Mark. I'm always. really sorry, Simon. How are you? I'm all right. <laughs> uh, I'm, this is not a good way to get it started because I feel terrible. So, so what's the best way to get you? What's the best way always to get you in a good mood? You talk about music. You talk about music. Yeah. How's the band? The band's great, actually. We haven't we haven't played because Val does a, a thing now where for three months every year towards the end of the year she's got a sort of professorship in New Zealand this, this is fun loving writers fun loving crime writers yeah. crime writers yeah, yeah. so she uh, so we did a few gigs as a five piece but then decided we were just going to not do stuff when she wasn't there so we haven't gigged with her for six months and we got to run a show starting at the end of February uh, at book festivals but at music venues just proper music gigs we were all a bit terrified about. So we've got a big rehearsal next month to try and catch up because we've just forgotten how to play stuff. When, um, when Lee Child was on last time, which is a few, a few months ago, yeah, yeah, November, yeah. November time, in his, in his last book, it's quite clear that what he wants to really write about is music yeah. and musicians and this loving uh, detail about guitars and drums and keyboards and riffs. And that's clearly what is making him yeah. excited. Well, that's, I think that's one of the reasons he's decided to knock on the head and, uh, you know, hand over to his brother. Um, and people have got all sorts of weird conspiracy theories about that, like he's Have ill they? and stuff. It's just not nonsense. He just wants to retire. It's that classic working-class thing. Of he's, I've done it. I'm, you know, I'm of a certain age. I want to read. I want to play music. I want to travel. Plus, when you've sold that many books. Yes. Yeah, <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's not like he's going to be struggling, you know. <clears throat> Uh, have you got any family members who could take over your oeuvre? <laughs> no, my kids have not even read anything I've ever written. I remember my daughter once when I said, why don't you read, she was reading, I don't know, David, F David Foster Wallace or something. And I said, you never read anything of mine? She said, I prefer something a bit more challenging. Oh! That's <laughs> great, isn't it, from your daughter? Yeah, very nice. I was going to interview with uh, Emily Blunt in the paper today, and the subject of Mary Poppins had come up in the course of conversation, and she wanted to watch, uh, the daughter wanted to watch Mary Poppins, and husband, John yeah, Rosinski, yeah. said, oh, should we put mummy on? And the daughter said, no, uh, no, no. <laughs> No, no, we'll have I the think, other version. I think, yeah. I think we'll have the original. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, now that Mark's here, let's. Uh, right. we, we do need to talk about the book. We do. Okay. We yeah. do. Uh, so here we go, and uh, <clears throat> Matt is going to describe the cover. Let's, uh, yeah, talk about the cover. I, I, the cover is very much a mood cover because, from my, and I've read the book, I don't remember a window playing a <laughs> significant role in this book. But basically, this is dominated by uh, a, a net curtain against a, a window, but it's basically it's white and black, and it's, it's shouting out thriller. Uh, the Little Secret in big block uh, red letters. Mark Billingham, a Tom Thorne and Nicola Tanner thriller, Sunday Times number one bestseller. There's a lot of very good messages yeah. uh, on, on that front cover. So just uh, new readers start here, Mark. Introduce us to Tom and to Nicola. Well, this is the first book that's actually been billed as a, as a Tom Thorne and Nicola Tanner thriller. Uh, Nicola came on the scene about three or four books ago um, and has just sort of bled in a standalone novel, in fact, and she's just bled into the series. Um, and this is the first time they're really working as a sort of team. Um, so, yeah, Thorne's been around, Lord, 20 years this year. And uh, it, he and Nicola have a secret of their own. 
which is very difficult to talk about without giving away the ending of the last book, which is one of the issues you always have with the series. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So you've got to dance around it in as elegant a way as possible without them constantly going, you know that thing that happened, yeah. the thing. Um, so I try and deal with that in a subtle way. Um, but basically this is about two different liars. Uh, a man who lies professionally because he's a con man, uh, who fleeces women, and a woman who is lying about something just extraordinary um, and been getting away with it for a long time, based on something I heard on the radio one morning when I was making my breakfast and just never, went, never rely on the radio. What? I know, <laughs> but I just, you know, I just stopped what I was doing and said, "How can this? How can this? How did she? Why was she? You know, just loads of questions." And I thought, what would happen if I put those two together? And the idea of writing about this folly adieu, this kind of slightly twisted, well very twisted relationship um, which is something I've been fascinated by for a long time I did a TV series a few years ago called Couples Who Kill have a guess what that was about um, and it was about exactly that when two people get together and this sort of twisted chemistry creates like almost a third entity mm. you know Hindley and Brady of course most famously and when I, when I made that TV series Ian Brady wrote to me uh, which was something that's stuck in my mind for wow. a long time, which is, as always, what's made me fascinated with these things. And said what? Said, well, it was a very odd letter, he, as you'd expect. He wanted me to know how, what a, firstly, what a miserable time he was having. <laughs> oh, right. Okay. Yeah, well, boo-hoo, Ian. Um, but also how clever he was, in a kind of sub-Hannibal Lecter way. He literally wanted me to know what his IQ was and how smart he was. Written in bizarre, tiny little handwriting. When we were doing the show, we had a sort of forensic psychologist working with us on the show, and he said, even if I didn't know who had written that letter, I would, I would know that that person had so, serious sorry, issues. He wrote to you as a result of the TV show or as you were working on it? Uh, while we were making it, because okay. he knew we were making it, and we'd made an application to go and see him which was refused, but then he wanted to have his say, so he decided to write to me. Um, I remember my wife didn't want to have the letter in the house. It's tucked away in a drawer somewhere. But uh, It does sound as though it's almost stereotypically the letter that you would expect. It, it kind of was. It kind of was. And, of course, he denies... I mean, I mean he doesn't deny, you know, what he did, but he denies all sorts of rumours, all sorts of things about his state of mind, where there's one thing this making this documentary convinced me of. He is... was... Insane. I mean, he was, you know, hearing voices, seeing visions, all all that stuff. She wasn't, of course, which is what makes it interesting to me. She did what she did because she was in love with him, and I find that very odd. Before Uh, we get into uh, some of the story as much as we as much as we can, you you often, it seems to me, get exactly the right balance between yes, this is one of a series. I think it's the sixteenth. Yeah, that's right. But it's also standalone. What I mean is, it is. Even though there's that thing, and even though there are all the other this history, you yeah. can approach this as your first. That's how it. Feels. Yeah, no, I hope that's the case. That's that's what that's what your intention is because you can't expect people to pick up a book that says you know number sixteen and, and go oh I haven't read the first fifteen and put it back again. That would be terrible for you and for your publisher and everything. So every book has to work as an entry point. Every and that's the way I've discovered the series writers I love, whether it's you know Michael Connolly or Ian Rankin or whoever it is. I didn't read their first book first. I picked up a book and then loved it and then looked at the front and went oh there's loads yeah. of these yeah. and then you go back to the beginning and you yes if you read the series in chronological order you probably get a bit more out of it because you know you're watching characters grow and develop and, um but yes you, you every book should work as a standalone you can read them in any order so before matt jumps in here set the hair running so it starts with with a suicide apparent suicide and tell us yeah it starts with a suicide which is not really it shouldn't be thorn's 
you know, bailiwick. He's he's on a thing called the homicide assessment team, whereas it's just his job to turn up at suspicious deaths, sudden deaths, and decide whether there's any foul play. And they decide very quickly that there isn't any foul play. It's a straightforward suicide, but something just niggles at Thorne. He starts looking into why this woman killed herself, and when he discovers why, he's on the trail of this con man. And meanwhile, we know that this con man has hooked up with this woman and bad stuff is coming. So given, you've, as you've said already, we've got these, these two characters who... And you've already brought, uh, brought up uh, Hindley and Brady, and though they're referenced quite a lot during the book. Um, I, want, I want to ask you about those two, because um, whilst I was reading it, I was thinking of... And this might seem like a bizarre step, but anyway... I was thinking a lot of Gone Girl. In that, you had two characters, the two main characters in there. Uh, you thought to yourself, and I remember Simon saying this after the movie came out, which was, these two, you pretty much deserve each other. You're both pretty unpleasant people. Mm. And, I, and so I want to ask you about those two because, right, the experience I've had in talking to writers about characters who are quite obviously unpleasant is that they get very possessive of those characters and says, oh no, no, I don't think they're quite as, as unpleasant as you're, as you're making them out. Would you agree? These, these are quite clearly these two people who you will have spent quite a lot of time with given yes. that you're writing them. How, how happy were you to spend time in their company? Oh, oh very. I like, you know, the devil has mm. all the best tunes. I yeah. like writing about unpleasant people and I'm firmly against the notion which you come across quite, you come across a, a lot in television if you're writing a television script or an adaptation of a book or something where people go, well, there's nobody likeable in it. Mm. There doesn't have to be. I don't know whether either of you watch Succession, yeah, you know, which yeah. is probably the show that I've been most gripped by in the last couple of years. There isn't a likeable person in it. There is nobody to root for. There is, they're all deeply unpleasant and damaged. And I just think it makes for great drama. Um, and yeah, these two, Conrad and Sarah, do kind of deserve each other. You get glimpses of the things that have made them who they are, that where, where this damage has come from. But absolutely, unpleasant characters are the most fun to write about. Um, in terms of setting the tone, I don't know whether people read the quotes. Is there a word for the little quotes that go on the first page? You know, the kind of, you've got an Elvis Costello uh, quote. Is oh, yes, a, yeah. Is it, Epi epigram. epigram. Is it an epigram? I think so. I shouldn't know. Anyway, it always marks a book out as <laughs> sort of literary, yeah. I think. Anyway, yeah. and, you, and you put in the acknowledgements at the end that you got permission from Elvis you know, I did, to do yeah. that. But that book, uh, sorry, that's, that song, I Want You, which is an amazing Elvis Costello's song, but it's so dark. It's so creepy. Isn't yeah, it? what I mean is, so if, if you want to sort of get a vibe for where this where this whole book is taking you, yeah, listen to that because you think you know what it is, and then you don't. Yeah, no, absolutely, absolutely. It was a, it was a song that uh, it's a song I love. I'm a huge Costello fan, as you as you can tell from the mentioning the acknowledgements, and I knew straight away I, I wanted to use a quote from that song at the beginning which is traditionally extremely difficult when it comes to musicians. And in fact, back when I wrote my very first book, I had an Elvis Costello quote, which I had to pay for, like everybody else would have to, you know, you have to pay for usage of it. And in fact, any time there are lyrics from a song or anything in one of your books, the copy editor always comes back with, please, can we take this out? Yeah. Just because, no, it's not even the money, it's the hassle and the legal things of dealing with music publishing and all that. And so most of the time you do. Um, but since that, between that first book and this book, uh, I've met Costello and I've interviewed him and I was able to just make a much more direct approach and he said, yeah, go ahead. Uh, so I was able to I was able to write an email to the copy editor going, don't worry about the Costello quote, it's all sorted, here's the email, which was a joy. You're making me very nervous there, Mark, actually, because 
I've got a book that's coming out in June, <laughs> and they're just starting the press for it now. And the first quote that they've, you know, how they like, you know, they put teaser quotes. And yes. So and the teaser quote, which does come up in the book, and this has been a long conversation between me and the editor. And the teaser quote is, "You don't need to be a weatherman to know which way the wind blows," which is, uh, which is Dylan, of course. However, it, in my defence, Your Honour, why, you know, and and that can be quite expensive. Yes. Particularly if you're quoting Dylan. Uh-huh. But, no, I can't, because now, if I now say why I think I'm going to get away with it, <laughs> I'm actually going to... Rev- no, so I'm not going to go there. Oh. <laughs> anyway, I'm not giving too much away. Okay. But well, anyway. it's, there's, no, there's no substitute for it, though, because what you, you, you put a lyric in, and they go, you can't quote the lyric. Can you describe That's exactly. the lyric? And you, you kind of can't. It's just not the same How thing. How do you describe a lyric? Well, you, you know, you don't need somebody, as Dylan says, you don't need somebody who forecasts the weather to be able to <laughs> predict the direction of the wind. So, uh, it's, it's not the same thing, is I it? Exactly, I have exactly this story, because in when I wrote Blame... There is a plot reveal point which hinges on a clash lyric. And I thought, my mistake was, I thought it was the title. So in the song, which is Bank Robber, uh-huh. I thought it was Daddy Was It, in brackets, Bank Robber. But it's not. The title is Bank Robber. So the first line is Daddy Was a Bank Robber. So if you use that line, Daddy's a Bank Robber, that's going to cost you. But I thought, it's the clash. Come on. I mean, they're not, it's, it's the clash. They're not going to sue. Yeah. And then on the actual day of publication, like, like the day it was at the printer's, I get a call from the publisher saying, we haven't heard from the Clash's lawyers. You're going to ha- exactly as you said, you're going to have to describe what happens. <laughs> well, apparently, this, someone's father <laughs> stole money from the bank. And it, that's exactly, the Clash then. Uh, yeah. And 99 times out of 100, it's got nothing to do with the artist. You know, no. all, the, all this, the yeah. artist is never even aware of it. It's all, yeah, it's it's all clash, about publishing. It's the lawyers, you know? basically. Yeah. Okay. Never, never mind the fact that the Joe Strummer isn't with us anymore and the Clash are the Clash, the kind of anti-establishment. They have lawyers yeah. and they have you know, publishing interests. Well, I remember when we interviewed um, J.K. Rowling and she talked about... She had in her one of her um, Cormoran Strike uh, books, she had um, Leonard Skinner um, uh, lyrics uh, uh, virtually at the start of every chapter. And she paid an inordinate amount of money to be able to get there. So it just it felt it feels like one of those things that unless you absolutely have to need it, you don't include it. Yeah, and, and most of the time you don't need it. It's mm. just a it's a nice thing. Yeah. And as you say with that Costello quote, it's about tone, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. It sort of sets the tone, and, and readers go, "Oh, okay, it's going to be like this." Well, people, if you if you listen to that song, you're going to be in the right frame of mind. <laughs> yes, you are. Uh, for, for their little secret, can I? It's quite difficult to discuss too much about the book because so much of it is, you know, that you draw the curtain back at various stages and we reveal different, you reveal different parts. But is it fair to say that, and this must be a particular challenge when you're writing book 16, that people get to feel comfortable with Thorne? They kind of they kind of feel as though they know him. Yeah. And I wonder if that actually is worth saying you shouldn't really do that. Well, um what I never did was have any kind of... When I started writing the first book, I remember getting to that moment where I thought, right, I should probably know a bit about this guy. Um, and I've known other writers who have, like, a dossier, a kind of file that says, this is where he went to school, this is what he has for breakfast, what he looks like, who his family are. And I didn't do that, um, which was a deliberate choice, because I thought, if the reader knows every bit as much about him as I do, then I'm going to be surprised, they're going to be surprised. The flip side of that, the problem with that, is that I make mistakes. I will get emails from readers going, why are his eyes brown? in book three and then green in book seven. Mm. You know, that's an extreme example. Or, or I had to say my, to my wife the other day, what's his mother's name? 
what the... But, you know, because I've just written a prequel, which is set in the mid-90s, when his mother's still alive, and I get to the first chapter with his mother, and I go, I could no... Could, and I, I could should just go to a file on my computer that has all that information, but there isn't one. So hopefully the reader can't get too comfortable with Thorne because they don't know what he's kind of what he's going to do next neither do I. I have no plan for him at all um yes the great thing you have with series and that I get as a reader when I read series is it's like putting on an old you know comfortable cardigan you sort of know oh it's him and he's going to have those scenes with that other guy that I really like and you know there's a comfort well speaking of comfort there's something that I enjoyed is that this is set uh Almost literally in a place I know very well, oh, which yeah. is that part of North London. In fact, where we have the, the the two main characters go on their first date to a cinema, I knew that cinema. Oh, okay. And then I also knew the pub where they went for a drink stroke meal afterwards, and I know the kind of food that they serve in that <laughs> pub. So I, I'm absolutely loving it. Uh, but and I, I mentioned this to Simon before you came in is. Clearly, Tom is a Tottenham fan, yes. uh, and that's a, yes. that's a, that's alluded to. And obviously, Simon's a Tottenham fan. I'm not, um, but I'm wondering whether you are. No, I'm not. Um, the reason I made Tom a Tottenham fan is that I'm a Wolves fan, and at the time I started writing the books, Tottenham were the Wolves of London. They were kind of sleeping giants, past glories, all that kind of stuff. Um, obviously, since then they've gone on to much better things. Thankfully, as have Wolves. But if I was to start the series again. Thorne would probably be a QPR fan or a Palace fan or something. The strange thing was, about 10 years ago, Tottenham got in touch with me and said, um, so you're a Spurs fan? And I went, "Uh, no, that's just my character. And they went, oh, that's all right, that'll do. We've laid all this thing on. And I got this big sort of VIP... Uh, tour of the ground and a shirt with Thorne's name on and got to sit in the dugout. and It was brilliant. All my friends were real Spurs fans. Uh-huh. Furious with me. Absolutely furious with me. No, I mean, if I'm going to support a London team, it would be Spurs. But There's, Thank you. That is, of course, the right answer. There is um, a line quite early on when Thorne is talking to his, his, his boss and, th- and he's playing... And you put it in capitals, bullshit bingo. Yeah. Uh, and and it just struck me. I, I mean, I really like that as a phrase. And I wonder if that, is that actually a police thing? I mean, I suppose you could play it in any job. You I, know, when I you get called want... in to see your boss. Yeah. yeah. Here we go. I heard it once. From a, I heard it first from a publisher. I heard it mentioned in a publishing context. But I just thought there is there is that scenario in every industry, in every yes. business. There's an element of bullshit bingo. And I want to ask you about. Um, the importance and what you can understand from someone from the way they've arranged their bookshelves. Because <laughs> we often ask people about this when we do the Q&A, but actually it's, it's a key... It's discussed early on in your book. It is because... because when I, when I first introduced Nicola Tanner, I wanted her to be the anti-Thorn. Yeah. So she is the kind of cop who you rarely see in books or in, or in crime drama who is just... Uh, would happily spend a whole life doing paperwork and would never dream of breaking a rule and is not a maverick and is not not any of those things that all our characters are quite a lot of the time. So she, of course, has her bookshelves arranged, you know, alphabetically and all complete. So Thorne goes into a house where he finds that they're all haphazard and just knows straight away that this would kill her, that she can't even come to this crime scene because she wouldn't be able to cope with it. We we always (laughs) have to be really careful when we're talking, obviously, about um, events happening later on the book. I'm going to ask you something about the ending, and I'm going to be very careful here. But it's something that, on reflection, I really liked about the book. And this, is, and I'm going to be as vague as I can. 
there is a loose end that is not tied up mm-hmm. at the end of this book. Mm-hmm. And it's a, it's a significant one. It's one that the reader will go, hang on, what happened to yeah, X character? I got an email about it this morning. Really? I swear to you. Yeah. I read it out to my wife over breakfast. I, went, I, really, oh, like, another... I really like that. I really like that, you know. <laughs> there are loose ends. You know, that is the way the world goes. And, and I quite enjoy... When I think about the ending of a book, I don't necessarily think about literally this happens and that happens and this character says that. I think, what is the taste I want to leave in a reader's mouth? What's what's the feeling I want at the end of this book? And I always knew that it was going to be that, that there was going to be this loose end, which is this person who you don't really ever find out what happens to them. You can take a flipping good guess at it, yeah, yeah, yeah. but I'm not, going to make, I'm not going to make that clear. And that's exactly what I wanted to do, even if I do get the odd email going, whatever happened to... Yeah. Uh, Mark Billingham's latest book is called Their Little Secret. What do we get from you next, Mark? What you get is the, is the 20th book, which is... Um, so this year is that is, the prequel? That you're it's the prequel, about? yeah. So it's 20 years of Thorn in 2020, almost like I planned it. So the 20th book, um, although it's actually only going to be the 17th Thorn novel, um, is a prequel to Sleepyhead, to the first book. So I've gone back to the mid-90s, so Thorn's a younger man. Thorn has yet to meet Phil Hendricks, who is his sort of best mate. That happens in this book. Um, and joy of joys, it's written at a time before the internet and mobile phones everywhere and CCTV and when you've videoed things and if you want to get photos developed you go to the chemist and if you want to know how to get somewhere to, you use an A to Z and all that stuff and there's no CCTV cameras Great. <laughs> which is just the, the bane of a crime writer's life because 99% of crimes are solved almost instantly by CCTV, mobile phone, cell site technology so to be able to set a book in a period um, without that has been a joy and to take Thorne back to when he was younger a lot less damaged and miserable um, has been a lot of fun and might we get more Dave Morrissey on telly we hope so we were having that very conversation this afternoon Um, we would both love to do it It, and it got stymied the series got stymied by one of those things where you know new brooms change of personnel new person coming in you know (laughs) that was the end of that and this person didn't want to recommission anything that their predecessor had commissioned and so we were all left a little bit high and dry um, with a lot of unfinished business Um, and I thought David was fantastic as Thorne absolutely fantastic I mean it's all all you want is a good act it doesn't matter if people go, oh, I thought he was a bit shorter than that, or, you know. Unless it's Tom Cruise. <laughs> that yeah, that's true. He could All fit right. in Jack Reacher's pocket, couldn't he? Um, although, as I once heard Lee say in public, Jack Reacher's height is only really ever a metaphor. Um, <laughs> nicely worked. <laughs> yeah, it was nicely done. Uh, Mark Billingham, thank you very much. Uh, the Q&A will be uh, with us, or with you, in a few days. <laughs> 